Hey guys, welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for coming back. I really appreciate it. If you're new here, welcome. I'm so happy that you're here. I hope that you stick around and watch a few more of my videos. If you're somebody that has been here before and is coming back, I so appreciate all your love and support. Thank you so much for coming back and for sticking around and for taking another look at another one of my videos. I'm so sorry that I still have this ghetto background. Um, I'm still moving. I haven't moved yet. I'm moving next week, so everything's going to be a little bit of a mess until I get that done. So just bear with me, please. I'm so sorry. I'm so excited for tonight's episode because the mafia guy that we're going to talk about tonight is kind of like a movie star. He's very posh and very like a celebrity and just a pretty boy. So I'm excited because all of the ones that we've talked about before... I've always been these like manly men that are just, you know, ready to kill. And this guy, this guy is just, he's cool. He's very laid back and, and loves his appearance. He's always in the mirror. So I'm excited to talk about him tonight. Giuseppe Antonio Dodo, or as he would later come to be known, Joseph Anthony Adonis, was born on November 22nd, 1902 in Montemorano, province of Avellino, Italy. His parents, Michael Dodo and Maria DeVito, had four children together. They were all boys, so four boys together. You can imagine the mayhem they probably caused together. Their names were Antonio, Ittori, and Genasio Dodo. His father went to the United States in 1904, and he was living with his uncle on President Street in Brooklyn. His mother came over with Adonis and his brothers to New York City in 1909 when Dodo was seven years old. Dodo was always one of the bad kids on the block. You know when you see in like documentaries, children drug dealing, and you're like, oh my god, that's so sad. They're like a baby. Yeah, that's Dodo. He worked on the streets picking pockets and just stealing whatever he could get his hands on. While he was working on the streets as a young kid, he became friends with Lucky Luciano and Settimo Accardi. Both were involved in illegal gambling, and both were sort of a role model for Dodo, so he got very close with them. When the family came over from Italy to Brooklyn, they settled on Carroll Street. He had a cousin, Alan Bono, who was a captain of the Luciano crime family. He supervised Adonis on all of his activities, which I think is kind of funny. You got Bono, Dodo, those four-letter words. When Prohibition started, Dodo got involved in the illegal manufacturing of alcohol, just like every other mafia member of their time. They all did bootlegging. It's just what you did. He, Luciano, Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel started a bootlegging operation in Brooklyn. Now, this wasn't your average bootlegging operation. They sold alcohol to Broadway elite in Manhattan, and so that means that they were socializing with theater and movie stars, selling a huge amount of alcohol to the actors as well as the viewers of the plays and the, the theater and the shows and everything. They led the Broadway mob, one of the most powerful prohibition gangs in Manhattan, and people started to call them gentlemen bootleggers. I don't I don't know why. I guess that was a title at the time, but that's what they were called, gentlemen bootleggers. He transferred most of his criminal activity to Brooklyn. I think that this is because he took a position under Frankie Yale, and he later took over Frankie Yale's role after he was killed in a dispute with Al Capone. It's unclear, and there's a bunch of different theories on how the name Adonis fell upon Dodo, because that wasn't his name. Here's a few theories that I found. He got the nickname from a Zigfield Follies chorus girl who he dated, 
kid. So she was calling him Adonis. So he just kept it. I saw that he adopted the name after he read a magazine article on Greek mythology because an Adonis is a human in Greek mythology. But it's supposed to be like a gorgeous, beautiful human. Another theory is that he was hanging out with his friends and as they passed a group of girls, one of the girls remarked that he looked like a young Adonis. Dodo liked that and he adopted it as his name. And another one is that Adon was the surname previously used by his family around the 1915 census. His father actually had Adon as his surname on his birth certificate. And as I said, the word Adonis refers to a human character in Greek mythology known for his physical attractiveness and great hunting ability, so Dodo took that name on. Either way, he went by Joe Adonis. Adonis was a pretty boy. You know the type, like, always looking in mirrors, combing their hair, doing anything that they can to improve their looks. It's just, he was a little prissy, you know? One of those boys that takes as long to get ready to go out as you do. Think of the characters in the movie Grease, like thick black hair, always in the mirror, always combing it, super vain, just really really uppity. Like, meh, not my face. This is my, this is my moneymaker, my face. Like, that was, that was Adonis. Luciano used to make fun of him for it. It, it was all good-natured ribbing, but he would see Adonis in the mirror for the 50th time that day and ask him, like, who do you think you are, Rudolph Valentino? And he would reply, for looks, that guy's a bum. So he thought that he was a lot prettier than Rudolph Valentino, who was a very, very famous star at the time. I'm pretty sure he did movies. I think he did movies. Let me see. Now I want to know who he is. Rudolph Valentino was nicknamed the Latin lover. He was an Italian actor based in the United States who starred in several well-known silent films, including The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, The Sheik, Blood and Sand, The Eagle, and The Son of the Sheik. So that's who Rudolph Valentino is, and he thought he was prettier than him. He was arrested in 1926 for grand larceny and robbery. He was arrested in 1931 for liquor smuggling, for assault and robbery in 1937, and kidnapping and extortion in 1940. All charges were always discharged or dismissed. The only thing that ever stuck to him was a disorderly conduct charge in 1927. And all he had to do was pay a fine for that, so I'm sure he didn't even, like, fight it very hard. I couldn't find what went into that, why he caught the disorderly conduct charge. I'm assuming it's, you know, cursing out a cop or something. I feel like everybody in the world has a disorderly conduct on them, you know. every Everybody has gotten a disorderly. It just is what it is. If you operate in a certain circle or do certain things, you're going to have a disorderly conduct on you. So I, I, don't, I don't count that as anything against him. Adonis married Jean Montemorano in 1932. Together they had four children, Joseph and Elizabeth Dodo, Maria Dolores Olmo, and Anne-Marie Arietta. His son Joseph Dodo Jr. was born on May 25th, 1933, and he was arrested in New Jersey all, with a whole bunch of different mafia members on May 7th, 1975, at the age of 45. He was called, in the article that, that announced his arrest, he was called a soldier of the Genovese crime family. He controlled loan sharking, gambling, and hijacking in Bergen County, New Jersey. He was arrested for bank robbery, fraud, and aggravated assaults. 
And remember, this is his son, not actually Adonis, but his son was arrested for bank robbery, fraud, and aggravated assault. The 1975 arrest was for bribery, obstruction of justice, and conspiracy, while the police investigated Anthony Carminati. I'm just going to apologize in advance here. I'm not going to pronounce these names correctly. I'm going to do my best, but I can't make any promises. He was an associate of Tino Fiumara, Michael Borelli, Michael Coppola, and Anthony Carminati. He was known as Joe Adonis. Jr., Little Joey, and Joey A. None of his other kids ever did anything cool. I can't find absolutely anything on any of them. So, you know, they they were girls. Girls very rarely get into the life or any kind of criminal life. So I, I wouldn't expect them to. But as his only son, I feel like he kind of had to step into that role. It's a very long history of sons of mafia members being in the mafia as well. It's definitely, definitely, definitely a family business. Adonis originally became involved with the mafia when he started working for Frankie Yale in Brooklyn. He was an enforcer for Yale, and I'm sure that he got hooked up with Frankie Yale because of his friendship with Luciano. I'm sure Luciano set him up with Frankie Yale. I spoke a lot about Frankie Yale in the Al Capone video because Al Capone was very involved in the mafia by working for Frankie as well. I'm not sure if they worked for him at the same time, but I do know that their paths crossed. They briefly met at the very least. I don't I don't know if they had any kind of tight relationship, but I never saw anything about the two of them together, so I'm assuming not. While Adonis was working under Frankie Yale, his friend Luciano was heading up the Young Turks and the Castella Marisi war started. Yale and Anthony Little Augie Pisano who was actually Anthony Carfano, were friends. And as Yale's enforcer, Adonis became friends with Carfano as well. This is how he ended up getting involved with Masaria, one half of the Castella Marisi War. Masaria sided a lot of people from other parts of Italy, while Maranzano's side was primarily Sicilian-based. Most people in his family were born in Castella Mer del Golfo, like he was, but Masaria had a lot of Neapolitan mafiosi, such as Adonis, Pisano, Vito Genovese, and Mike Miranda. I'm not going to review the Castella Marisi War because I've talked about it way too much on this channel. If you're interested in the intricacies of the war, go check out my video on Salvatore Maranzano. And there I give a full breakdown of exactly who, what, when, where, why, and how of the Castella Marisi War. But just know that Adonis was involved in it and he was on Masaria's side. Anyways, as I said, Luciano was creating the faction known as the Young Turks, and Adonis went to join his friend Luciano, who was working for Joe Masaria, so that's how he ended up there. When Velacci, the mafia informant that officially established that the five families existed, and he also officially established that the Mafia Commission existed in open court. When he spoke of Adonis, he said that Maranzano wanted to kill Adonis after the Castella Marisi War was over, which is pretty wild because I know that Maranzano, when he ended the Castella Marisi War, he was very set on, you know, leave everything from before the war behind. This is a new life. This is a new family, a new faction. Leave it all behind. If your brother was killed, forget about it. So it's kind of surprising to hear that he still wanted to kill Adonis after the Castella Marisi War was over. So they must have had a lot of really, really bad blood. His position in the Mafia was never confirmed. We know that he was never actually a boss of one of the five families, but honestly, 
honestly, he could have been at any level in any of the families, and we really just don't know. It's very likely that he was involved in the Mangano family in Brooklyn, or the Luciano Costello family in Manhattan. Two different families, but they always work very closely together. It's not like the families were enemies, so he could have been either or. We really just don't know. I also explained this in the Maranzano video, but in an effort to stop the war, Luciano went to Maranzano and made an agreement that if Maranzano ended the war, Luciano would kill Nassaria for him. Another stipulation was that Luciano would lead one of the five factions, now known as the Five Families, that Maranzano planned to put into place. Luciano wasn't as slick as he thought, though. Messaria caught wind that Luciano was planning to kill him, and he reached out to Adonis for help. Messaria asked Adonis to kill Luciano so that Luciano wouldn't have a chance to kill him. But I don't think that Messaria realized how tight Adonis and Luciano were, though. Because Adonis got this order, and he was like, oh, hell no. He went running to Luciano, and he was like, bruh, you will never freaking believe what Messaria just asked me to do. You'll never believe it. <laughs> as soon as Luciano got word that Messaria was trying to recruit someone to kill him, he asked Messaria for a meeting. They went to a restaurant in Coney Island called Scarpado's Nuova Villa Tamaro. They sat down for a meal, they played some cards afterwards, and during one of the games, Luciano got up to go to the bathroom. While Luciano was in the bathroom, Adonis, Vito Genovese, Albert Anastasia, and Bugsy Siegel ran into the restaurant and killed Messaria. The picture of Messaria lying dead in a pool of blood with an ace of spades still clutched in his hand is probably, to this day, one of the most iconic mafia hit photos ever taken. Him and Anastasia at the barbershop, I would say top two, maybe top three with... Paul Castellano. So yeah, Joe Messaria, Paul Castellano, and Albert Anastasia. Top three mafia hit photos ever. Nobody was ever indicted of the killing of Messaria, and not long after that, Luciano also had Maranzano killed. As soon as the Castello-Marisi war came to an end, life went back to normal for the mafia. Adonis and Luciano continued their bootlegging operations, peddling illegal alcohol to the Broadway elite and spectators. Obviously, they had to take a break from that during the Castello-Marisi war. They were hitting the mattresses, they were staying at other people's houses. Bonanno actually got arrested during the Castello-Marisi war because he went out shortly and he had a gun on him. Um, so they didn't do that. It wasn't smart to go out during this war. Adonis started to move into legitimate businesses, as most Mafia members do, to avoid catching a tax fraud case, which is how they take down a majority of the Mafia guys. He opened a few used car dealerships in New Jersey, and the people that worked there were also soldiers under his command. When people went to any of his shops to buy cars, they were intimidated into buying protection insurance for their car. So it wasn't enough to just have regular insurance. They had to have protection insurance because they knew that if they didn't get this protection insurance, there was going to be a group of guys that came over to their house and ruined the car in their driveway that night. Adonis bought a crap ton of vending machines and stocked them with stolen cigarettes, providing a huge profit margin. If you weren't born in the 90s, you probably won't remember this, but I remember when grocery stores used to have those vending machines that you could go to and buy cigarettes. I bought cigarettes from those vending machines 
quite a few times and I'd always be so terrified that an employee was going to catch 10 year old me buying a pack of cigarettes but they never did but that's why they did away with those kind of vending machines because it was so easy for underage kids to get their hands on cigarettes and you know in the 70s 80s 90s they didn't really care if kids got their hands on cigarettes they didn't love it they didn't allow it but they didn't really care that much but once you know the 2000s came along things got a lot more strict so they got rid of the vending machines Adonis made his base of operations an Italian restaurant called Joe's Italian Kitchen he owned the restaurant in South Brooklyn which we now call Park Slope on Carroll and 4th Street Adonis became a mafia boss in his own right he didn't become a boss of one of the families but he did become a boss within the families he was probably just as powerful as one of the bosses of the five families he was worth millions and millions of dollars and he wielded a huge amount of power bosses used to laugh when they heard that Adonis's favorite thing to do was join his soldiers on jewelry heists the same way that Albert Anastasia used to kill people when he had underlings that easily could have done the job for him he just enjoyed killing people so he did it on his own Adonis just loved pulling off jewelry heists he loved it and he never let his soldiers do one without him it was way below his pay grade and it was a lot more danger than he needed to take on but since he enjoyed it so much well what was somebody gonna do tell him no like no no you don't tell Joe Adonis no in July of 1931 con man Samuel Gasberg Isadora Jeffy and Isaac Wapinski swindled Meyer Shapiro Joe Adonis who had bankrolled the operation with a loan in 1931 received a payoff that he regarded as inadequate he and Anastasia thought that they should be receiving a higher profit he kidnapped Jeffy and Wapinski with Anastasia both men were severely severely beaten and then released in Brooklyn after they paid a $5,000 ransom payment Wapinski died in August from internal injuries from the beating in the hospital and Jeffy ran to the cops and told the cops what happened he appeared before a jury and claimed that he had been kidnapped tortured and released when he made a payment he claimed that Adonis was pissed that Jeffy and Wapinski swindled him in a money-making scheme and a real estate transaction if you look this up now people claim that it was Adonis that got greedy and thought that he deserved more but at the time even Jeffy said that Adonis was a pawn that he was using in a scheme and what did you think was gonna happen you thought you were gonna scam the mafia and nothing was gonna happen you were just gonna walk away scot-free because you are who you are like no and you're surprised you got beat up you went after Albert Anastasia and Joe Adonis come on like you can't what what did you think what did what would you think what'd you think come on he's smarter Adonis was indicted for the crime on April 27th 1940 but police cleared him and Anastasia after three witnesses died before delivering any testimony against them there's a reason that when people are witnesses against the mafia a lot of times the police will lie to the people that are witnesses and they won't tell them that it's the mafia that they're actually being a witness against as soon as they find out that it is a mafia member they back out of the trial I hate to say it but if you don't back out of the trial if you don't go against what you want to do and say hell no I am not testifying against that person you're probably gonna die that just is what it is as I said before get smarter don't 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 be a witness against the mafia like nothing is worth that oh I want to get justice oh I thought you wanted to live that's what I thought 
but you know, whatever. Justice. Sure. You know what's going to happen? You're going to die and no justice is going to be had either. So you could either walk away and live or you could stay, you can get killed and the person's still going to walk away because you died. Get smarter. He started to pay off politicians and high-ranking police officers to look the other way when it came to his criminal activities. Some dudes pay off politicians and then they only want to use it for their own gain, but Adonis wasn't like that. He used his connections to help a bunch of his friends. He got Meyer Lansky and Louis Lepke Buchalter out of a bunch of jams. Adonis's mother, Maria DeVito Dodo, passed away in the summer of 1934. His father died in April of 1939. Adonis, Frank Costello, Meyer Lansky, and Bugsy Siegel all shared ownership in the Colonial Inn, a huge casino in Miami Beach, Florida. He got involved in some joint gambling stuff in Saratoga, New York, so that means that more than likely he was probably boys with Stefano Magadino, Joseph Bonanno's cousin who ran the Buffalo, New York crime family at the time. He was starting to build an entire empire of gambling in New Jersey. He started working with Willie Moretti, a good friend of Frank Costello's. Costello was all over the place in gambling. He legit had his hands on everyone's pot of gold when it came to gambling. Everyone's. I feel like I've already done an episode on him, but I haven't. It's just how often his name comes up in everybody else's videos. Adonis formed an alliance with William O'Dwyer, a county judge that later became the mayor of New York City. He presided over the mafia affairs at Duke's Restaurant, a famous mob hangout at 73 Palisades Avenue in Cliffside, New Jersey. Adonis became heavily involved in the crime syndicate that Albert Anastasia and Louis Lepke Buchalter started, Murder Incorporated. After he and Anastasia had kidnapped those dudes together and killed Nassaria together, they were thick as thieves. They, they were BFFs. While he was a little prissy, Adonis definitely didn't shrink away from a fight, and he definitely ordered a lot of contracts be carried out by Murder Incorporated. When Luciano was arrested on those prostitution charges that put him away for 30 years to life, he left Genovese in charge of his family. This would end up being a gigantic mistake, as we all know, but that was the decision he made for some reason. While Luciano was in prison, he was helping America fight and win World War II. He had his mafia family policing the docks so that enemy vessels couldn't get in through the New York Harbor, and he initiated communication between America and Italy, which paved the way for America to use Italy as a way to access Germany. Italy started the war as an Axis power, but after negotiations with Luciano, they switched sides. On October 13, 1943, the government of Italy declared war on its former Axis partner, Germany, and joined the battle on the side of the Allies. Which is so wild to think about. Like, obviously, I'm obsessed with the mafia and mafia history and all the guys that have been involved in it in the past. So I know that most people don't find this kind of stuff as interesting as I do. But to think about the impact that these guys had on America's history, like we could be speaking German right now for all we know if it wasn't for the American mafia. They made sure that America won World War II. And yeah, there was D-Day, but that was an airborne operation. The airborne operation on D-Day, they met back up with the people that were already in the country because they had access to the country through Italy. So it's wild to think that these huge moments in American history, they would never have happened. And Luciano probably had as much impact on World War II as an entire country did. It's, it was huge. He won the friggin' war for them. In 1945, Luciano was released from prison, but he was immediately deported to Italy. While America still took heavy losses after Italy switched sides, 
its D-Day was on June 6, 1944. They only did that because they knew that Germany expected the U.S. to enter through Italy, and the defenses on the borders there were out of control. By invading by sea and going the long way around, they were able to permeate defenses that were much easier, and the Airborne Division could carve a path to soldiers that were already posted at points within Germany who had landed there through Italy at earlier points. It's really interesting. It really is. It's really interesting to go back in these points in history and see how much of an impact this all really had. Because a lot of people look back and, you know, they call the, oh, those scumbags, they were criminals, they were dirty, they were this, they were that. You could say what you want, but they protected American freedom probably as much as any country did back then. They literally changed the tides of World War II, saving countless soldiers by converting an entire country to their side. Who can say that? One person changed a country. They switched Italy from an axis to allied power. They prevented enemy invasions into America's mainland. Imagine how many citizens would have died if those mafia members weren't there to protect the ports. They helped to end the war and the atrocities that the Germans were enacting against Jewish people in internment camps over there. So it's wild. It's it's crazy and they deserve a lot more recognition and praise than they get. They're looked at as criminals, they're looked at as their beds, but they're not. They they deserve a better memory. Anyways, when Luciano was deported to Italy, he started to see what a weasel Vito Genovese was. Genovese was starting shit with Luciano's best friend, Albert Anastasia. So when he left for Italy, he left Frank Costello as the head of the family, not Genovese. While Costello was left as the boss of the family, he left Adonis in charge of his criminal syndicate, Murder Incorporated. I can't really figure out why he left him in charge of that. Anastasia wasn't in jail or anything. Maybe he was just busy as the boss of his own family. I don't know. You would think that Anastasia would be left in charge of it, but he left Joe Adonis. When he put Adonis in charge... He asked that he cooperate with Meyer Lansky. Murder, Inc. was a syndicate of killers that carried out mafia hits for both the Italian and Jewish mafia families. Meyer led it on the Jewish side, and Adonis led it on the Italian side. Now, this is the time that everybody starts moving away from New York. New York has always been known for its democratic government, which means that every single thing in the world is illegal there. Guns, gambling, everything you can think of, it's illegal in New York. In the early 40s, Fiorella LaGuardia made it his life's mission to take out any and all illegal gambling places in New York. He got his hands on a whole shit ton of machines that Frank Costello had placed across New York slot machines. This is what initiated Costello to take his operations and move them to New Orleans and get in with Carlos Marcello. Adonis was still in charge of Murder, Inc., so he stayed behind in New Jersey. He moved his family to a beautiful house in Fort Lee, New Jersey, at 1020 Dearborn Road in Palisades Park, about a quarter mile away from Anastasia's house. Anastasia also moved to New Jersey, living in a mansion at 75 Bluff Road, with 25 rooms and a seven-foot gate guarding the house, which is pretty impressive. The walls are at least a foot thick, and every room has two or more doorways for a quick getaway. The mansion is littered with secret trapdoors and hidden bedrooms. Imagine going into, like, a royal castle. They have these, you know, secret trapdoors that go into rooms that you don't know exist. There's rumors that below the mansion, there's a path of tunnels that leads to the cliffside. The basement alone has 12 rooms. There's also a room in that house covered in tile, and it has a drain in the middle of the ground. 
sounds. Rumors were that it was a slaughter room, but I highly doubt it. I highly doubt Anastasia brought any of that stuff home. His family really had no idea what he did. He went out and worked at Murder Inc. as like a nine to five, but he came home and was part of, he was a family man at the end of the day. He came home and played with the kids at the end of the night. He had plenty of places in Manhattan to kill people. Why would he risk his children's lives by bringing that home to them? Anastasia was the type, like he would go to a local park with kids and watch all the neighborhood kids in the sandbox while their moms went out and like did shopping and they trusted him. All the kids would ask to play with his gun, which was like, you know, proudly displayed in his belt. He didn't let them, obviously. But the moms, even though he was a criminal, even though he was carrying, they all trusted him. They all knew nothing would happen to their kids when he was around. So do we really think that there was a slaughter room in his house? Probably not. Since Anastasia was killed, owners of that house include Buddy Hackett, the star of Love Bug, which was apparently a show back then. The owner of the Yankees, Del Webb, helped him buy it. After that, Arthur Imperatore Sr. purchased the property. He moved into that house after he took a single delivery truck and turned it into a billion dollar empire, which is super interesting. Like, that's some boss level shit. I love, like, came from nothing, now we hear stories. That's that's awesome to hear about. So, yeah, he bought that house. He turned into a billionaire and, and Anastasia's old house it was where he wanted to be. In 1946, Meyer Lansky organized the Havana Conference for Lucky Luciano. Since Luciano had been deported to Italy, he couldn't re-enter the United States, but he still wanted to meet up with all the important figureheads in the Mafia. The Havana Conference was set up in Cuba. The Mafia Dons came from all over the country to attend the conference. Their excuse to the government, who were asking why everybody was congregating, was that there was a Frank Sinatra concert that was being held there and they wanted to attend and there was a gala and they had like a whole setup to justify why they were all going to Cuba. Sinatra flew into the Havana conference with Al Capone's cousins, Charlie, Rocco, and Joseph Fischetti. Charlie and Rocco Fischetti brought with them a suitcase that contained $2 million for Luciano's share of earnings. All the mafiosi that attended gave Luciano money totaling around $200,000 as like Christmas gifts. It wasn't even like his cut. It was just like everyone wanted to, hey, here you go. $200,000. And that's in like the 40s. Like imagine how much that is now. That's insanity. Luciano's aim at the conference was to regain control of his family. He planned to stay in Havana and run family operations from there. Some attendants of the conference were Tony Joe Batters Accardo, Albert Anastasia, Joseph Bonanno, Frank Castello, Vito Genovese, Thomas Three Fingers Brown Lucchese, Stefano Magadino, Carlos Marcello, Mike Miranda, and Joe Perfacci and Santo Traficante. Adonis gladly handed over control of Murder Incorporated back over to Luciano. Adonis truly loved Luciano. Like, he had no problem handing over responsibility to him if it meant having his longtime friend be able to participate in Mafia affairs again. He knew that most everything that he had, he owed to Luciano. So he had no problem handing it back to him when he was going to take back over control. There was already Mafia influence in Cuba. Meyer Lansky had set up multiple casinos in Cuba that he owned with the president of Cuba, Fulgencio Batista y Salvador. And there was already an enormous drug trade going on between America and Cuba through Florida and New Orleans and their use of shrimp boats and Teamsters trucks to transport the drugs. The Havana Conference was the place of one of the biggest announcements in Mafia history. Luciano announced that he had eliminated the position of Capu di Tutti Capi, or Boss of Bosses, after Salvatore Maranzano had that position and was 
killed by Luciano himself. This is also where the Mafia Commission was announced, and the framework was laid for the group of bosses of each of the five families to be a ruling body that settles disputes, which we know now as the Mafia Commission. A lot of things were discussed at the Havana Conference, and it was one of the most influential and important meetings in Mafia history. The Commission, the American Mafia's narcotics trade, the situation with Bugsy Siegel, it was all ironed out at the conference. At this point, it was clear that Vito Genovese was an enemy, and he was making a power play against Luciano and Frank Costello. It was clear that he wanted to take over the family, and Anastasia seconded Luciano's bid for power, so he also became an enemy as well. The American government caught wind that powerful mafia figures were in Havana for a conference, and they found out that Luciano was attending as well. They got really, really pissed at that. Like, the whole point of deporting Luciano was to get him out of America's affairs, and here he is, a stone's throw away, and he's still calling the shots in the American crime syndicate. Since America had absolutely no power in Cuba, they did the next best thing. When they found out that Luciano was in Cuba and consorting with the American mafia there, they told Cuba that they would stop sending over any and all narcotic prescription drugs if they didn't get rid of him. Cuba relied really heavily on American medications, so they immediately threw Luciano on a boat and shipped him out of Cuba. America was just looking to be an asshole, though, because they imposed sanctions and embargoes on Cuba in the 1960s that severely impacted ordinary Cuban citizens' ability to access medications that they needed. These sanctions and embargoes are still in place today, and they're still having a severe impact on the Cuban people and their economy. This ban has severely constrain Cuba's ability to import medications and medical supplies from third country sources. It's also a huge problem because corporate buyouts and mergers between major U.S. and European pharmaceutical companies, they made it even more difficult and increased the number of companies that were not allowed to do any business with Cuba. Donations from U.S. non-governmental organizations and internal agencies don't begin to compensate for the hardship inflicted by this embargo on the Cuban public health system. And on top of that, a lot of delays in licensing and other restrictions, they severely discourage charitable organizations from making contributions. All four of these issues have placed severe strains on the Cuban healthcare system. The declining availability of food and medicines such as basic medical supplies and replacement parts for 30-year-old x-ray machines are taking a huge toll on human life. The embargo has closed so many windows that, in some instances, Cuban physicians have found it impossible to obtain life-saving medications from any source under any circumstances. Patients have died, like a lot of patients have died, for no reason, for completely curable things because the Cuban healthcare system doesn't have access to medications. There are a few hospitals that are high technology and devoted to cardiology and nephrology, but they're particularly under siege because they can't get the medications that they need. But other major problems that they're dealing with in Cuba are water quality and food security. It's a really sad situation, and it's all because the United States put sanctions and embargoes in place for no good reason. In 1991, there was 1,297 medications available in Cuba. They now have access to only 889 of those same medications. So think about their numbers have been cut almost in half. And that means that they have no access to all these new medications that are coming out. 
So they are still having people die from things that they shouldn't die from. Because most major new drugs are developed by U.S. pharmaceutical companies, Cuban physicians have access to less than 50% of new medications available on the world market. Due to the direct and indirect effects of this embargo, the most routine medical supplies are in short supply and entirely absent from Cuban clinics. It's really, really sad, and it's a bad situation. The whole point of that is that this whole problem, it all started with Luciano. The threats began because of him, because he had gone to Cuba and the United States was mad. And even though they complied and they got rid of Luciano out of the country, JFK still moved forward in putting detrimental embargoes in place. JFK was the worst president in the history of history. The worst president. Fuck that guy. Sorry for that long ass tangent. I, I didn't mean to go off like that, but uh, it just really irritates me. The United States is such a bully. They're so corrupt and so unfair. And then they have run around acting like they're the world's morality police. But look at what they're doing. They're bankrupting entire countries for no good reason. None. Zero. Anyway, back to the Havana conference. Adonis handed control of Murder, Inc. back over to Luciano, but when Cuba sent Luciano back to Italy, Luciano was immediately apprehended by police when he got back to Italy. They took his passport and they informed him that he would be under police supervision for the rest of his life, so obviously he couldn't leave Murder, Inc. So Adonis took back control of Murder, Inc., making sure to take care of the syndicate in Luciano's absence. He opened a casino in Lodi, New Jersey, and set up a limousine service between their in New York City for all his New York City friends, which is really cool. Think about it. You want to go to a New Jersey casino, like you want to go to Atlantic City, and you're in New York. There's literally a limousine service that goes from point A to point B. So you could like ride in style, make it like a whole weekend. Like these guys have all the money in the world. So they know the lavish lifestyle. So don't get me wrong, you know, like for a person like like me, something like that would be super extravagant. But for these guys, it was just, you know, another Monday night, whatever. But I just think that's cool. Like a whole limousine service that is specifically for the purpose of getting between New York City and this casino in Lona, New Jersey, which is it's dope. He was already working with Meyer Lansky on Murder, Inc. business, so the two of them went into business together and opened up illegal casinos in Hallandale Beach, Florida as well. If you've watched any of my videos so far, you've heard me talk so many times about the infamous Cover Commission trials. I'm pretty sure I pronounced that wrong. I'm pretty sure it's pronounced like Keith Foffer or something, but... I call them covert because it's it's spelled weird. Like, it's really weird. So, covert it is. They called everybody that had ever so much as been accused of being involved in the mafia to testify. Almost every single person that was called pled the fifth the entire time. Adonis was no different. He pled the fifth the entire time. But the problem was that every single person that was called to testify at these trials became an instant celebrity. This is really bad for anybody that's an underground criminal that doesn't want to be recognized. They don't want to spend their entire lives in the spotlight. They spend their entire lives trying to stay out of the public view. So these committee trials bringing forward every person that's involved in the mafia and putting it on national news, it's really not a good thing for these guys. The Kofor committee hearings were the beginning of the end for Adonis. He had long claimed to be an American native and he said that he had settled in Fort Lee, New Jersey in the mid-1940s, but he was shown to be an immigrant in the 1950s. 
Birth records indicating a 1901 birth in Passaic, New Jersey, were found to be fraudulent. Italian birth certificates, immigration records, and early statements made by Adonis and his family members to authorities conflicted with statements that Adonis had made under oath before a New Jersey grand jury. The killing of 19-year-old minor Alex Alpert would be the beginning of the end for Murder Incorporated. Harry Rudolph was being held as a witness in the Rudolph case, and since he was getting charged with first-degree murder, he flipped. He sang like a canary, and he convinced others to do the same. He convinced Anthony Maffatori to talk. Maffatori said that he wasn't involved in that killing, but he was the getaway driver for six other murders. This testimony convinced Abraham Levine to turn witness, who flipped Albert Tadenbaum, and then it just went one by one. They were just stacking up and up and up. Seymour Magoon, Sholem Bernstein, and Abe Rells all became government informants. A talent scout in Brooklyn, Abe Rells had been sending hitmen to Murder, Inc. for 10 years. When he was arrested and he wanted to evade the death penalty, he agreed to testify against murdering. Seven members were convicted of murders that they had committed while working for murdering, and Rells knew a whole lot more than that. He had information that would implicate Anastasia in the murders of Morris Diamond and Peter Panto, so Anastasia put a $100,000 contract on his head. Rells was also the one that implicated Buchalter on the four murders. Rells, who was being watched by armed guards during one of the trials, was found dead in a room on the sixth floor of the courthouse. A grand jury later ruled that it was an accident, but officials believed that it was a murder. Anthony Romeo, a Murder, Inc. member who had been arrested and questioned about Panto's murder, was killed at Anastasia's request. His body was found in Delaware with signs of a beating and a few bullet holes. Louis Lepke Bucalter was one of the main ringleaders of Murder, Incorporated. He was killed in the electric chair at Sing Sing for his involvement in the syndicate. Just saying, do you notice how I, in the last five minutes, I haven't mentioned one Italian name. Yeah, we can thank Anastasia for that. He's the OG, triple OG. He was not letting any of his men get wrapped up in this nonsense. On May 28, 1951, Adonis pled no contest to charges of operating a gambling room in Lodi and Fort Lee, New Jersey. He was sentenced to two to three years in prison. While he was in prison, Adonis was charged again for perjury. The U.S. said Adonis had entered the country illegally when he returned from the Havana conference. He had papers showing that he was a citizen and that he was born in America, but the government claimed that he was born in Italy, which he was. He fought the charges, saying that his parents told him his entire life that he was born and raised in America. He fought the government really, really hard to stay in America, but he was ordered to be deported. Adonis had a very important, very old friend that he had known forever. Joseph Kennedy had numerous contacts in the syndicate for from his days bootlegging during Prohibition. Joseph Kennedy swore to help Adonis avoid deportation. Adonis pinned all his hopes and dreams on remaining in America on Kennedy, especially because Kennedy was a really important guy. His son was running for president of the United States, and his other son was going to be the district attorney. I never knew that Kennedy's father was involved in the mafia. That has to be why the both of them went so hard against the mafia. How crazy is that, that the president and district attorney that made it their life's ambition to take down the mafia had a father that was in the mafia. There was a New York politician that did the same thing. It was Giuliani. Giuliani had a father that had like gotten into a shootout with somebody on the streets. He was he was mafia as well. And then Giuliani did the same thing, just did everything in his power 
power to take the mafia down while he was in office. On January 3rd, 1956, Adonis voluntarily left New York City. He took a luxury ocean liner with a $750 room for the trip. He left voluntarily so that he wouldn't be stuck being deported as a prisoner. He could ride in style if he left on his own. If he was forced and taken, like, on a prison boat, he would be in terrible condition. So he was just like, fuck it, I'll leave on my own. I'll make this decision. Not you. His wife and children stayed behind in New Jersey, which can you imagine how freaking heartbreaking that had to be? Adonis had never even been to Italy, and all of a sudden one day he's on a ship headed for Naples, Italy, and never allowed in his home country again where his wife and children live. Joseph Kennedy promised the mobsters that if they helped JFK become president, he would finagle it so that Adonis could return to the U.S. as a citizen. He absolutely guaranteed it. Once JFK was elected president with the mafia's help, he failed to uphold his end of the bargain, and he did not allow Adonis back into the United States. He put his brother Robert F. Kennedy in place as the district attorney, and Robert F. Kennedy waged an absolute war against the mafia in court. If you watch my video on Carlos Marcello, I talk a lot about the mafia's involvement in JFK's assassination. It looks like his refusal to help Adonis come back to the United States after the mafia helped him get elected was the beginning of the end for JFK. He didn't live to see the end of his presidency after making promises that he had no plans on keeping. Again, I don't know why these guys think that you can just mess with the mafia and walk away scotch-free. Like, what did you think was going to happen? You just schemed the crap out of them. Like, they got you elected as president. And then you're going to turn around and be like, ha, huh, no, never happened. I never said that. Mm -mm, wasn't me. Like, well, you don't think you're going to get your head blown off in a freaking convertible in Houston? Like, come on, dude. Or Dallas. I'm going to say it one more time. Get smarter. So now Adonis has been exiled from America and he's stuck in Italy. Luciano had also been deported and was also currently living in Italy. There's no proof that Adonis and Luciano met up in Italy, but you gotta assume that they did, obviously. They were boyhood friends. They were both in a foreign land that they were unfamiliar with. Why wouldn't they meet up? Eventually, though, the waters got murky between Adonis and Luciano. Adonis was, like, super, super rich, and Luciano was having some serious financial hardships at the end. The government was constantly putting pressure on him, and that had a huge impact on his ability to earn and maintain finances. Adonis did not have this problem. He continued to be financially comfortable, and apparently he didn't really help Luciano when he was down and out, which I think is a little messed up. Um, Luciano helped create Adonis, so you would think that he would help him, but we also don't know what actually happened. Like, he could have given money to Luciano, and Luciano just, you know, blew it. And he turned around and was like, no, I'm not going to keep doing this if you're just going to keep going broke. We don't know. We have no idea what actually happened, so I am not willing to pass judgment on that. It's also said that the relationship soured because Adonis sat on the sidelines while Vito Genovese made the power play to take control of Luciano's family, and also while he took out Anastasia, one of Luciano's best friends. Luciano got pissed at Adonis because he didn't do anything. I'm not really sure why he got mad, though, because as far as I know, I don't think Luciano did anything either. What was he going to do? Like, it was a bad and a sad situation for everybody all around, but to expect Adonis to do anything is just 
kind of silly. He's exiled the same exact way you are, dude. Luciano died of a heart attack on January 26th, 1962. I say it that way because I do not believe that he really died. I have a short video on my theory of what happened with Luciano. If you're interested, just ask in the comments and I'll post the video. But the gist of it is that I believe Luciano pretended to die so that he could get back into America. When Luciano died, a teary-eyed Adonis came to the funeral in Naples. He requested permission to attend the funeral of his boyhood friend, and he was allowed by the courts to go to Naples for the funeral. He brought a huge wreath with him with the words, So Long, Pal, written on it. I also saw reports that the wreath said, Goodbye, old pal. I'm not sure which is true, but the gist of it is the same. Adonis got a luxury apartment in the center of Milan. So now, he's just chilling in Italy, minding his own business, and the Italian government steps in and forces him to leave Milan. The Italian government made him relocate to Serra dei Conti, a small town near the Adriatic Sea. He was relocated there with 114 other people who were suspected of being involved in the mafia as well. In June of 1971, Pietro Scaglione was killed. Scaglione was an Italian magistrate and chief prosecutor in Palermo, Sicily. He and Cesar Terranova, the head of the investigative branch of the prosecution's office, rounded up 115 people to be interrogated and prosecuted for their involvement in the first mafia war and the Chiacully massacre on on June 30th, 1963. Scaglione was killed with his driver, Antonio LaRusso, as he returned home from visiting his wife's tomb at the Cappuccini Cemetery in Palermo. Italian police transported Adonis to a small shack on a hillside near Ancona, Italy, for interrogation. They went a little too hard, and Adonis ended up having a heart attack. He was taken to a regional hospital in Ancona, where he died on November 26th, 1971, at the age of 69 years old. Nobody was ever convicted of killing Scaglione. After his death, the police carried out the second trial of the 114. It was supposed to be 115, but obviously they killed Adonis, so they couldn't try him. Adonis's body was flown back to the United States for burial. Unlike a lot of other mafiosi, the Roman Catholic Church actually allowed his family to have mass there. Usually the church doesn't allow mafia members' family to have a mass for them because of their involvement in crime, but maybe because Adonis's family promised to keep the mass small, and that's why they let them do it. I'm not sure, but either way, it's a huge change from what we see from other mafia members. They're never allowed to have church funerals. The mass was only attended by his immediate family. He's buried at Madonna Cemetery in Fort Lee, New Jersey. His tombstone reads Joseph Antonio Dodo, so if you don't know that that's his real name, you'll never know that you're looking at Joe Adonis's tombstone. Adonis and his ultra-huge ego are depicted in a number of movies, TV shows and plays. He's consistently, consistently talked about in mafia documentary series, and anytime anybody talks about Luciano, Bugsy Siegel, or Meyer Lansky, Adonis's name is sure to come up. That's all I have for tonight. Thanks so much for hanging out with me. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, share, follow, do all the things, and I'll see you next time. Bye! <laughs>